Heavenly Father, we thank you for each person that's here with us today and the enthusiasm and the hunger for your word that you've placed upon us. We ask, Father, that you'll keep the zeal that you've given us for you strong in our hearts and minds at all times. And that you help us to make it through those times when an evil spirit would tell us that we're not yours and that we cannot overcome. Be with our, our brother, uh, Nicholas, and give him victory over this this time of struggle. Give him a victory that will cast out these demonic spirits that want him to succumb and to believe that he is not yours. Help us also, Father, to have a desire to identify with each and every person in our flock that is your flock, that is suffering in any way, physical or mental or spiritual. Help us to identify with one another and to and to pray for one another, knowing that you do hear the prayers of a righteous man, and you will answer those prayers. So be with each of these that we've mentioned to you this morning. Supply their need. We rejoice with those whose prayers you have answered and who are were reporting to us the good things that you've done in their lives. And now we ask that you will go with us into this study that we're going into today. Open our eyes and ears to see and to know who we are in you. To take that position that we have in you seriously and realize what it means to be the Christ. And to understand, Father, that our lives are to be a sacrifice for each other. And it is through the Christ that any of us will make it into the kingdom of God. So we thank you for each part of your body that you placed here with us today to partake of the things of the Spirit and to eat at the table that we're eating of. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. All right, uh, we're continuing in our series on the biblical overview of the plan of God. This is the third study in the, in the series. and uh, I've entitled this The Instrument of His Power because we are that instrument. But I'm going to review just a little bit of what we've already covered so as to give it the uh, flow that it, I feel like it needs. In our first study in this series, uh, we saw the scriptures witnessing to the fact that God does indeed have a plan and a purpose for effectuating the salvation of all men of all time. What we saw was that his immutable intention is to head up all things, all of his creation, in heaven and in earth, and what's called the Christ. Uh, I'm reading out of the Rothbard Hands Version here, Ephesians 1.10, for an administration of the fullness of the seasons to reunite for himself under one head all things in the Christ, the things upon the heavens and the things upon the earth in him. And then Colossians 1, verses 15 through 19, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. By him and for him. Now, we are him, so just keep that in mind. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And of course, we're going down to verse 24 of the same chapter, and he tells us, as I'll probably be covering here later, you know that we fill up in our body what's behind of the afflictions of the Christ for his body's sake, which is the church. He is the head of the body, the church. We fill up his afflictions for the church. That's very significant to what we're going to be discussing. Everything the Father is doing is being done by Christ and for Christ. God the Father is the author of this plan, and he does not beat around the bush in explaining why he has given Christ the preeminence in all things. 
He's a God of love, so he does all that he does out of love for us. But the reason he gives for placing Christ at the head of the creation is simply this. It pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. So God has revealed to us that he has a purpose and a plan in all that he's doing. And Christ has been chosen of his Father to be the head of all things. And through Christ, and through his Christ, the Father is in the process of redeeming to himself all things in heaven and in earth. Ephesians 1.9, having made known to us the mystery, the secret. This has been kept a secret for thousands years. It's a secret to today. Nobody knows what God is doing. They think they do, but they don't. They have all kinds of theories that are just not scriptural. There are amillennialists, postmillennialists, and none of them realize what God is doing, bringing all men to salvation. Having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he's purposed in himself. That was the essence of our first study. The second study, uh, we saw the sequence of the events that effectuate that plan and purpose. But we didn't include the holy days given to ancient Israel in that study. I want to include them in this study because they have hidden within them the revelation of those who will be that, in that blessed and holy first resurrection, who we are later informed will be the instrument by which Christ will accomplish all his Father sent him to do. Our calling is phenomenal. It's, it's beyond our ability to comprehend in the flesh. That's the subject of our study today. So I'll go back through the biblical sequences of events which will lead to the salvation of all men of all time. We'll take special note of the revelation of the dual first fruits. The dual first fruits. We're called a kind of first fruits, as we'll see, which are later revealed to be that for which the creation waits in great anticipation. Oh, yes, it waited for Christ. But it's also waiting for his Christ. Romans 8, verses 19 through 23. Uh, the earnest expectation. Earnest means you know, the wholehearted expectation of the creature waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly. Free will in anything that God says. Not willingly but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. God has given man an evil experience to humble him by it. That's, that's Ecclesiastes 1.13. Verse 21, Because the creature itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The creature is all men of all time. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails. The whole creation groans and travails in pain together till now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. That word adoption is sonship. Waiting for the mature sons of God which is the redemption of our bodies. Now, these holy day festivals reveal the necessary sequence of events in the plan of God. These holy days, which Christ himself gave to Israel, were actually given not unto themselves, but for our admonition as spiritual shadows of the plan and purpose uh, which God the Father is working out through Christ and for Christ. And it tells us that in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, all these things happened to them. Israel's whole history was for types. That word in samples is types. They're types, spiritual types. And they're written for our admonition. The Greek word is tupos, by the way. Tupos, and it's translated in samples, but it's types. It's written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world have come. Not written for the people that it happened to. They happen to them, and they're written for us. That's just what the Scriptures teach. First Peter 1 Peter 1.12, and I'll be repeating this, of course, but unto whom it was revealed, talking about the Old Testament prophets and uh, uh, patriarchs and kings and judges and uh, 
all of the people of the Old Testament, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister, the things which are now reported to you by them that, are, that preach the gospel unto you with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Now there we are. We're informed that the law of Moses, of which these holy days are, and their sacrifices and rituals are an integral part, were given to Israel for our admonition, had been a mere shadow of things to come. And yet most people have no idea what they're really all about, least of all the masses of Jews and Christians of the world. Hebrews 10.1, for the law having a shadow, the law is the first five books of the Bible, having it with all those holy days in them, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices, which are part of those holy days, which they offered year by year, continually, make the comers there into perfect. They're all shadows of things to come. And that's what we're going to try to understand today. What, what do they mean? What are the things to come that these holy days and their rituals and sacrifices foreshadow. The holy days were given to Israel with those sacrifices they offered, typified good things to come. But coming to Christ and his anointed, his Christ, they were not, in reality, at that time, ministering to the people of the Old Testament because the faith of Christ was not yet available to anyone of that era. <clears throat> They were all, at the time those Holy Day festivals were instituted, still under the law, for the lawless. The mere shadow of good things to come, to whom the promise was spiritually in reality made. It seems like it was made to Abraham, but in reality it wasn't made to Abraham, it was made to his, his seed. Galatians 3.19, wherefore then serves the law. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. It wasn't made to them, it was made to Christ in reality. And we're going to see how that works. And it was ordained by the angels, by angels in the hand of a mediator. The promise appears to the natural man to have been made to Abraham and to his physical seat. You know, it just says, Abraham, look around you, north, south, east, and west, and, and it's all yours, and the uh, your seed will be as the stars of the heaven and the sands of the sea. That's what, it, that's what it says. But we, we find out later that that's type and shadow of Christ, not Abraham. So the festival of Pentecost is also called the Feast of Firstfruits. It's also called the Feast of Firstfruits. And it was on that particular feast that the New Testament church was founded. Now that's significant. That's significant. That the New Testament church was founded on Pentecost. It wasn't founded on, on Passover or the Days of Unleavened Bread. It was founded, well, founded on Pentecost. They, they, were, they were there on the days of the bread, of course. That's a type of our conversion, but it's not. You, nobody's converted until Pentecost. Acts 2, verse 1 through uh, 4. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all going accord in one place. And suddenly there came sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared upon them cloven tongues like fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That was when they were converted. Christ told Peter, after he was resurrected, he said, when you're converted, feed my sheep. So that's, that's when we're converted on Pentecost, not Passover, not the days of unleavened bread, even though there is a work that takes place there. And we're going to find out what that is. It's an immature work for carnal Christians. That's what Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread are. Exodus 23, verse 16. In the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of your labor, that's Pentecost, which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering. Now, this is tabernacles, which is in the end of the year. One's at the beginning and one's at the end. When you have gathered in your labors, out of the field. Well, one of the Pentecost is actually in the summer. He he's not mentioning uh, Passover in those verses. That was earlier. But Passover is not our conversion, like 
some people think. They think that you, you accept Christ's blood, you're a converted Christian, and you're a shoe-in for the first resurrection. The sinner's prayer doctrine teaches that, that doctrine. Exodus 34.22 says the same thing. You shall observe the Feast of Weeks of the first fruits. Notice that. Pentecost is called the Feast of the First Fruits. That's what I want you to see here. Of the wheat harvest. The wave sheaf 50 days earlier is not the wheat harvest. The wheat harvest doesn't come in. Can't come in until later. That's the barley harvest back there in the in the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is immediately attached to the Passover. Okay, the reason the Holy Spirit came on the Feast of Pentecost was because those who are in Christ are also a kind of first fruits. And James tells us just that. He says, of his own will, no free will there, no, just not there. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We're a kind of first, well, so what? So what? Well, that's very significant. That's what? This is interesting, considering that Christ himself is called the first fruits of them that select, and his resurrection is typified by the offering of the wave sheep at the barley harvest 50 days prior to the Feast of Weeks, of the first fruits of the summer wheat harvest. So Christ is the first fruits in the spring. We come along later, 50 days later, just like happened from the resurrection of Christ to the Day of Pentecost. That's when we're converted. That's when we're given the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have His Spirit, you're none of His. That's what the Scriptures teach. Okay, Leviticus 23, verses 10 through 12. Speak unto the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then you will bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your barley, is what it is, harvested unto the priest. And he'll wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. On the morrow, after the Sabbath, the priest will wave it. Well, that's exactly when Christ was resurrected. And you shall offer that day when you wave the sheaf. And he, lamb, without blemish, kept find Christ of the first year for a burnt offering unto the Lord. The scriptures reveal that the first fruits of the wheat harvest of the festival of Pentecost typify those in Christ who are now the spiritual first fruit seed of Abraham. Abraham being a type of Christ, because he's not really the father of the faith at all. Abraham didn't have saving faith. Christ did. He brought it to us. James 1.18, of his own will begat he us of the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits in Galatians 3.26-29, for you are all the children of God by faith in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. For as many as you of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ's, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It's not if you are Abraham's, then you're Christ's seed. That's not the way it works. If you are Christ's, whether you're Abraham's physical seed or not, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We've been through Ephesians 2 and Galatians 2, and we know what those scriptures teach. It's not those who are physically descended from Abraham who are in Christ and who are Abraham's seed. We, brethren, as Isaac, are children of promise. Galatians 4.28. It is believed by most Christians that because Abraham and all the Old Testament saints in Hebrews 11 are said there in Hebrews 11 to have had faith, by faith so-and-so did such and such, therefore they'll all be in the blessed and holy first resurrection. Now, is that really what the Scriptures teach? The answer to that question is a resounding absolutely not. That's the equivalent. To say that is the equivalent of using... Exodus 16, verse 4, to prove that manna was the true bread from heaven, while ignoring the fact that Christ tells us that the bread from heaven, which Israel called manna, was nothing more than a type and a shadow of himself as the true bread from heaven. Exodus 16, 4 says, this is Christ speaking, by the way, 
Then said the Lord, that's Christ, unto Moses, Behold, I will bring bread from heaven for you, and the people uh, shall go out and gather a certain rate every day that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or not. Was that Old Testament uh, manna the real bread from heaven, or was it just a shadow of the truth? John 6, 31 through 35, Jesus himself talking, or one of the people talking to Jesus said, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it's written, he gave them bread from heaven. Then Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he that comes down from uh, heaven and gives life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. Now that is the true bread. Verse 32. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Manna was not the true bread. It was a type and a shadow. The bread from heaven of the Old Testament was not the true bread from heaven. It was nothing more than a spiritual type and shadow of the true bread from heaven, which true bread was Christ. Like the faith of Abraham, which was not the true faith of Christ, but a mere type and a shadow of that true faith. Look at Galatians 3, 22 and 23. The scripture concluded all understand that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them to believe. Believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Now, let's just ask a few questions. Did Abraham's faith secure him the promises? What do the scriptures teach us? Hebrews 11, 39 and 40. All these, all these people mentioned in the Old Testament, saying, saying they did all these things by faith, all these, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God, having provided something better for us, us had the true faith. Not the shadow faith, but the true faith. That they without us should not be made perfect. Now, if they obtained a good report through faith, why didn't they receive the promise? The answer is that they, their Old Testament faith was not true faith. Any more than bread from heaven of the Old Testament was the true bread from heaven. Both were mere spiritual types of the true, which is Christ, and which was available to no one till the seed should come. To whom the promise was made. The promises were really made to Christ, not to Abraham. Until the time that until that time we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Afterwards, not before, not at that time, afterwards. John 1 17. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth, true bread, true faith, true grace, came by Jesus Christ. Wherefore then serves the law of Galatians 3.19. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was actually made. It was ordained by angels in the hand of me. In Galatians 3.23, before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith that would afterward be revealed. Abraham did not have the faith which would afterward be revealed. The faith of Christ teaches us to love our enemies and to take, uh, if they take your goods, ask them not again. Well, the faith of Abraham told him to destroy the kings who had taken Lot and, uh, and the plunder of Sodom and take the plunder and the goods back. Genesis 4, 14 gives us a story. When Abraham heard that his brother was taken, his brother being Lot, his nephew, taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318 pursued him, the men that had uh, pursued him unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, and his, he and his servants by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left side of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. Just did it, there was no faith of Christ in any of that. Christ's faith says, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute. You give to, and Luke 6.30, give to every man that asks you, 
And of him that takes away your goods, ask them not again. Don't go after them and get them back. I heard a minister on TV say that the Lord told him to chase down this, or to, to steal back his bike that, that someone had stolen from him. I said, go ahead, get it. And he says, said he drove several blocks, and then the Lord said, stop now and look from the seat. Make sure you got the right bike. And sure enough, there was his name under the seat of the bike. I knew that was a lie because he was listening to us. A false spirit who spit upon Luke 6.30, give to every man that after you, and he that takes away your goods, ask him not again. And say, steal it back. And those of us who know the word of God will, will try those spirits and see and hear them. And this is a big name minister that so many people listen to every week. Of which salvation, 1 Peter 1, verse 10 through 12, again, we're going to read it again. Of which salvation the prophets inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Grace did not come to the Old Testament people. Now, I'm a little uh, excited about this because I've been challenged on it recently and I just want to drive it home. This is truth. Searching what? Of what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify but it testified before the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Not that they had. If they had it, they wouldn't be searching for it and, and uh, being diligently inquiring about it if they had it. We have it. Unto whom it was revealed. It was revealed to these people in the Old Testament that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister. The things which are now reported unto you by them which have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven which things the angels desire to look into. Now, why would the Spirit tell Daniel to seal up the book, and then the book of Revelation tells to seal not the book? Well, it's because they didn't understand the things that they were giving, ministering to us. That's why. And they will not be in the first resurrection. Did the Old Testament saints receive saving grace? Absolutely not. They prophesied of the grace that had come to us. Not themselves, but to us. Did they minister? Did the glory that comes with the obedience of the faith of Christ come to the Old Testament saints? No, it did not. Rather, it was the glory that should follow the sufferings of Christ. Did all those things which happened to the Old Testament saints happen to them for their own admonition? Absolutely not. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister. It happened to them, and it's written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world will come. With all this in mind, let's go back and consider what is revealed to us about the purpose and plan of God in the annual Holy Days festivals which were given to Israel for our admonition. We'll start with the Passover. Those festivals begin with the Passover, symbolizing the sacrifice of Christ as our sacrificial Passover lamb. That Passover sacrifice was foreshadowed in the Garden of Eden when God himself killed an animal to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness which they were made aware of. They were naked before they were made aware of it. The law just made them aware of it. When they broke the law, they, be, they realized, wow, we're naked. We need to cover our nakedness. God's going to be here in a few minutes. They didn't realize he's always there. But they were predestined to be disobedient, and God killed an animal and covered them. And uh, it was all predestined to be that way. So we're told in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you were unleavened, even as Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So Christ is sacrificed, and he covers our sins, but we're not converted. Adam and Eve were not converted, and we, when we first come to Christ, are not converted, as we'll see here. The, the, the Passover, in the days of unleavened bread, are not conversion. They are just change, life-changing uh, events in our life. The days of unleavened bread follow on the hard against the Passover. They're, they're, and they're immediate. The 14th and the 15th of Nisan. The Passover festival is followed immediately with the days of unleavened bread, showing us that we are granted to accept the sacrifice of Christ's body and blood for our sins and the consequential effect that we begin immediately to put sin out of our lives. That's what the Days of Unleavened Bread symbolized. And that's the same thing that the Flood of Noah symbolized. They were both shadows 
of the doctrines of baptisms. The doctrine of having sin burned out of our lives and being washed clean of our sins by the blood of the Lamb. It's, it's a beginning, but it's not a conversion. We need to understand that. Revelation 3, 27, verses 13 and 14. One of the elders came to me saying, What are these that are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? Now, one of the elders is talking about the four and twenty elders around the throne. And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are they which came up out of great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Well, that's exactly what that elder said about himself in chapter 5. They've been redeemed out of all nations by the blood of Christ. So the sacrifice of the life of our Savior, you know, that's very important that, a, that an elder came and asked him that question and that the elder himself is part of these people who are made close. Now, back up just a little bit. This is, Roman, this is Revelation 7. And these verses right here are immediately following the the revelation of the 144,000, which are in verses 12 to 1, up above that. But they're the first fruits. This right here is actually the the great innumerable multitude that follows the millennium. Nonetheless, they all wash the robes white, make them robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. So it's all symbolism of the plan of God. The sacrifice of the life of our Savior and the purging of sin from our lives are the first two steps of the plan of God for the lives of all men of all time. For their judgment is now in the great or in the great white throne, the lake of fire, the same steps must be taken. In order as it is laid out in the holy day festivals God gave to ancient Israel. Now, after the days of unleavened bread, fifty days later, seven sevens plus one more day is the feast of Pentecost. The word Pentecost means count fifty. That's that's what it means. But there's great significance, great significance to this count 50. Now, 50 is a multiple of 5, and 5 is the number from grace and faith. What the Holy Day, that's, that really has a lot to do with the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of First Fruits. Uh, what the Holy Day festivals reveal, and what the New Testament reveals, is that our initial acceptance of Christ our Savior at the Passover festival and the purging of sin from our lives, which the days of unleavened bread signify at that point, are an early baptism, which is youthful and immature and outward in nature. Our Passover and the days of unleavened bread, conversion, precedes the trials of the wilderness. Israel came up out of Egypt and went through the Red Sea before they began the trials in the wilderness. And they, they experienced a lot of miracles during that time. From the time Moses first started talking to them to the time they came up out of Egypt. Wow. He started early in the year before the Passover. The Passover is the first feast of the year in the spring of the year. And during that time, they saw all the miracles in Egypt. They saw the firstborn die, and they saw uh, the water turn to blood. And that, 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 that was an, the firstborn dying in Egypt was an incredible event. It wasn't just the firstborn of the humans. It was the firstborn of every animal. And then they see the Pharaoh let them go. And then they come to the Red Sea. And, of course, they have no faith. And that's where we learn that the cloud is dark on one side and bright on the other, typifying the Word of God. But then they go through the Red Sea. And only then, only then, after all of that, do they begin to have trials. There were no trials in Egypt. They thought they were because they were having to make bricks without straw, get their own straw. And, of course, it seemed like there was nothing to be in three days without water out in the desert, having no meat to eat, living on manna, that, that was nothing compared to that. They actually wanted to go back to Egypt. It seemed so nice back there making bricks and having to get their own straw. They wanted to go back to that. So the trials began after the Days of Unleavened Bread, which came after the Passover. 
Now, I'm not denying that there is an experience that we have at Passover. It's a deep experience that shakes our world up and gets us to thinking about more important things than just pleasing ourselves. But it is not conversion. And it typifies the time that Christ's apostles spent with him, seeing the miracles that he performed, just like Israel witnessed all the miracles that God performed through Moses. Same thing. And yet Christ says to Peter, when you're converted, feed my sheep. I think I said earlier that was uh, after his resurrection. But that, was, that was actually before his, his death and resurrection. He said that to Peter. Check me out. I could, I, I could have that wrong. But anyway, it's certainly before... Certainly at the end of his ministry and before the day of Pentecost. Leviticus 23, verse verse 16. Even unto the morrow, after the seventh Sabbath, you shall number 50 days, and you shall offer a new meat offering to the Lord. Now, we're leading up to Pentecost here. This is Pentecost coming up. And this is where we come into the picture as the Christ of Christ. There are millions of Christians who experience Passover, billions of them, but never make it to Pentecost. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 4. Tell us what what the Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread are about. I, brothers, can speak to you as to spiritual, but as unto carnal babes in Christ. Carnal, but in Christ. Every branch in me that brings not forth fruit, my Father cuts it off. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are you able. You are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, 40,000 divisions and counting, are you not carnal and walk as men? For while one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? He said, well, Mike, you're just... You're just one more of those. No, I'm not. I'm not incorporated, and I'm not an organization. I'm just showing you what the Bible says, what it actually says. Fifty is a multiple of five and indicates a work of chastening grace. Five is grace and faith. That's what it means. Ten is the flesh. And that's what we're talking about here in Pentecost. Grace and faith working on the flesh brings us to on the arrival of the only of the Holy Spirit within us when we're brought to the day of Pentecost. Count fifty. Wait at Jerusalem. Carry Jerusalem. Until we have been brought to Christ in a more mature stage, having repented of being carnal babes in Christ, we cannot be given the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In other words, babes in Christ are indeed yet carnal. And without the Holy Spirit dwelling within, in a way that begins to the chastening and discouraging, which is experienced by a more mature child. In fact, you know, after gone through the Red Sea, it's no longer an immature babe, but has progressed to the point of being capable of receiving chastening and discouraging and tribulations, which must be endured by every mature son who has received of the Lord. And that's what we are told in Hebrews 12. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges. You don't do that to babies in diapers on milk. Now, the word every son there is G5207, mature son, whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God is with you as with mature sons. Babes in Christ, back there the word is napios, not huios. There's a world of difference between those two. One is a disciple. And the other is a disciple indeed. For what son, Huios, is he whom the Father chastens not? But if you be without chastisement, if you're a baby in Christ, whereof all are partakers in time, we will all be partakers of that chastisement. Then are you bastards, carnal babes in Christ, same things, and not sons, not Huios. Napios are not Huios. No parent chastens a baby, but any good parent does chasten children who are mature enough to benefit from the pain of a scourging, which will make them think twice about disobeying their loving father. It's of utmost important for us to know that the Greek word babes in 1 Corinthians 1, 3-4 is napios, while the word for sons in Hebrews 
12 is huios, making a son who is now, meaning a son who is now much more mature and is in need of being chastened and scourged for the purpose of giving him loving rebuke and correction. This is the Pentecost stage of the plan of God within our lives and within the plan of God for all men. It's the beginning of the day of judgment in the lives of those who are part of the first fruits of this harvest. First Corinthians 15, 22, As an animal will die, so Christ will all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. That's talking about Pentecost there. Christ the first fruits is the resurrected Christ, the antitype of the wave sheaf of the barley harvest during the days of unleavened bread. Christ's resurrection immediately followed the Passover sacrifice of himself. The next day, the first day of the week, the morrow after the Sabbath, was when Christ was resurrected and received up into heaven as the way sheep offering. Christ's resurrection was the morrow after the Sabbath during the days of our loving night. That's when it was. They that are Christ at his coming, it's speaking of those who have the kingdom of God within them, Luke 17, 19 and 20, who have died in Christ since his death and resurrection, continuing up to the time of his uh, uh, coming to establish his kingdom of the kingdoms of this world for the symbolic thousand years. Revelation eleven fifteen, the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, our Lord and his Christ, that you and me, and he with them shall reign forever and ever, the eons of the eons. Now, the next step after Pentecost is the Feast of Trumpets. The events which lead up to the rulership of this world by the elect of God are pictured within and without by the Feast of Trumpets. On the first day of the seventh month. Now, we're told in Leviticus 23, verses 23 through 25, about this feast. <coughs> the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, and holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Every holy day, symbolizes a great work of God and another step in his plan with each of us. Outwardly and dispensationally, these holy days symbolize a step in the plan of God for all men. And yet every holy day is a Sabbath because God wants us to know that he is working all things after the counsel of his own will and his own purpose. Not because of anything we do. Ephesians 1.11 in whom we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who is working all things after the counsel of his own will. And after our free will, the counsel of our free will, we have none. Everything we do is caused to be done, even our sins. And read Romans 7 if you have any doubt about that. Romans 7 verses 17 through 20 give you the fact that our sins are not our sins. Twice repeated. One back now. Every step of God's plan for mankind is to be taken only with a sacrifice made by fire, with fire unto the Lord. The fire of God's chastening and scourging does indeed entail torment. But it's a fire which burns up and consumes all that can be destroyed by that fire. It's the burning up and the loss of what can be lost that hurts. That's the torment. That which is not consumed and destroyed is purified by the fire. The torment, like the fire itself, has a purpose and an end. And that purpose and end is the cleansing and purifying of every man. Every man shall suffer loss of all the wood, hay, and stubble in his life. But he himself will be, in the end, be saved. Yet so is by fire. Now that's the teaching of Scripture. Joseph is a type of Christ, our judge. And the way he dealt with his brothers who sold him into slavery in Egypt, they were his brothers, they weren't heathen, you know, they were the seed of Abraham, they were Christians, 
They typified Christians who don't know Christ and who would crucify him this very day if he came and said, love those Arabs uh, that are over there in decapitate. Love them. Uh, you know, don't pull out a sword and start fighting them. Put up your sword. He that takes the sword, you know, if Christ were to come and say those things today, they would, the Christians would crucify him. And they said one to another, this is Genesis 41, I mean 42, verse 21. Because this situation here with Joseph and his brothers typifies what happens after the millennium with all of the Christians who hate the doctrine of Christ, as Joseph's brothers hated him and his doctrine. He, he said, you know, you're going to bow down before me. And they said, oh, well, we'll see about that. We'll kill you. Oh, no, we'll just sell you and Egypt and make some money on you. We'll take this coat of yours and just take it back to Dad and and let him uh, let him mourn your loss. They didn't care about their father. They wanted to get rid of Joseph. And that's the way it is today with Christianity as a whole. They don't care about God and his word. They want to get rid of you and me and the doctrine of Christ. Well, they come down to Egypt before their uh, brother Joseph. They don't know it. And, they, and Joseph is giving them a hard time. He's not patting them on the back and saying, uh, you know, I, I, t- I paid it all for you. Just go your way and have a good time. They said to one another, we are very guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we would not hear, therefore, is his, this distress upon us. Joseph was in the pit crying out, and they were paying him no attention. And Reuben answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child, and you would not hear. Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. They're right there in the lake of fire. They know they're in a bad spot, but they don't know what's going to become of them. And they knew not that Joseph understood them. For he spake unto them, by an interpreter, and he turned himself from them and wept and returned to them again and communed with them and took from them Simeon and bound him before their eyes. Joseph is not giving them a get-out-of-jail-free pass. It's an emotional thing to have to witness our own brothers and sisters being brought to true, deep repentance through the torment which their own words bring upon them. But we too must endure this very same godly repentance in our own lives before we'll be granted to cause our brothers and sisters to be brought to that same godly repentance in their lives. Joseph could easily have said, Hey boys, it's me, Joseph, your brother. You sold into Egypt and into slavery. But hey, don't worry about anything. I died for you in a sense, uh, spending 13 years as a slave in Egypt. And now all you have to do is accept my generous sacrifice for all that you did to me. But that's not what Joseph did. That's not what Christ did to you and me. And that's not what we will do for those in the lake of fire. That fire is the Word of God. And this is what the Word of God teaches us about who we are and what we will do. Ezekiel 14, verse 4. Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus saith the Lord, every man of the house of Israel that sets up his idols in his heart and puts his stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and comes to the prophet, comes to the word of God, comes to you and me with that word, I, the Lord, will answer him that comes according to the multitude of his idols. Now here's what that means. Christ speaking to the man that thought he was a hard man. You think I'm a hard man? That's the idol of your heart? That's how you look at me? He said to him, out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew, it's in your heart that I'm an austere man. Taking up that I had not laid down and reaping that I did not sow. I mean, Christ was the one who gave this man his talent. He gave it to him. He sold it to him. And the man hit it. Just like we do with God's commandments when we don't like them. We just spit on them and say, I'm going to go over there and fight those uh, ISIS people. I'm going to kill as many of them as I can and do it all to the glory of God. How do people tell me just that? Christians. Christians. People professing to be Christ. This is exactly what Joseph's brothers thought of him. And it tormented them. For many years, they thought that he was going to be a hard man. Like Christ spoke to the man who hid his talent. They really believed that when Jacob died, Joseph would get his revenge on them for what they had done to him. Genesis 50, verse 15, when Joseph's brother saw their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us. 
that will certainly requite us all the evil we did to him. Now, he had told them 17 years earlier that he wasn't going to do that. But they had the idol in their own heart. They weren't converted. They were still, you know, in the uh, Passover, days of unleavened bread. Well, they appreciated what Joseph did to them. But all he had done was give them gifts. When you're, when you're receiving gifts, you're in the milk. When all your prayers are being answered, you're in the milk. When your prayers aren't being answered, when you're struggling, and your faith is being tried, you're in the meat. Galatians 6, 17, 7. Galatians 6, 7. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. That's just the truth of the word. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work, every man's work of all time shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, the day of judgment, whether it's now or in the lake of fire, because it shall be revealed by fire. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial that is to try you. The time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And the fire will try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. And go to hell and burn forever? No, 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 no. But he himself shall be saved by fire. Yet so is by fire. So the Christian doctrine as one of severe, a God of severe hatred toward his creation and a God at the same time who teaches smooth things and is going to keep us from having to suffer any bad thing at all. Contrary to the smooth teaching of the false doctrine of the substitutionary death of Christ, Christ is not in the process of saving us with coffee and donuts, as one minister said. Rather, he himself shall be saved yet so by fire. That's the truth of the gospel. Much easier to be forgiven, and at the same time refuse to forgive those who have trespassed and sinned against us. We, that's, that's what the servant did in Matthew 18. It would also be much easier for Joseph to have revealed himself to his brother to begin with, than for him to be, have restrained himself from doing so, while he tormented them, as he did, and he did. These things happen to them, and they're written for our admonition upon whom these very same ends of the world have come. That's right. These events are the events that come upon us in the ends of the age, both inwardly and dispensationally and outwardly. We're going to live all these things. As the Apostle warned us, and as our Lord himself taught us, don't be deceived, God isn't mocked. Whatever man sows that he will reap. By the tormentors till the debt is paid. And we're going to read it here, right out of the mouth of Christ. This is Christ speaking to the man who was forgiven so much, 10,000 talents, that he could never have paid back. Then his Lord said, that, said after that he called him, uh, Oh, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you desired me. Should not you have had compassion on your fellow servant, even as I had pity on you? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do unto you if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Now, you will hear me say it a thousand times. Mercy rejoices against judgment. And I will be the first to rejoice at any mercy God shows me or anyone else. And I want to be sure to show that mercy. But that's not going to change the truth that we read what we sow and that our Heavenly Father will deliver us to the tormentor till we should pay that which was due Him. Vengeance is His, not mine, not yours. And that's what, that's what is meant by mercy rejoices against judgment. If we are merciful to others who have wronged us, if we're willing to die for the doctrine of Christ, then God will take care of the judgment. 
All these lessons are learned by those who are pictured as first fruits of the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm in the Feast of Pentecost. From Pentecost to the Feast of Trumpets is the time from summer to fall. It's during this extended time that we're being matured by fiery judgments, which begin at the house of God. I quoted 1 Peter 4.12. Don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trials that are to try you, as if something strange happened unto you, but rejoice that you're counted worthy to suffer with Christ. Those fiery words apply to us first, and we are the first to be judged out of our own mouths, according to the idols of our own hearts. First uh, Peter 4.17, For the time has come, this is just five verses later, the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin, begin, not end, at us, what shall the end be of them that will be not the gospel of Christ? Well, the judgment continues in the lake of fire. And Second Thessalonians 2.8, And then shall that wicked be revealed, that's the man of sin within us, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. That wicked shall be consumed with the spirit of his mouth. In other words, the wicked is consumed by the fiery words of Christ in the mouth of his first fruit witnesses. That's the fire. That's what destroys the wickedness within us. Exodus 34.22, you shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of the harvest, and the three feast feast of ingathering and the end of the year. Well, we're coming toward the end of the year here. What is this feast we're on here? This, this trumpets? Uh, yeah. Trumpets comes after Pentecost. Um, Revelation 11, verse 3, I will give power unto my two witnesses. They will prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees, the two candles standing before the God of the earth. This is you and me. This is those who are in Pentecost and come through Pentecost to trumpets. If any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. If any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. All of our enemies are going to be killed by the fire of God, and they're going to be worshiping at our feet in due time. The Feast of Weeks, the first fruits of the harvest, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of the Ingathering at the year's end is the double festival of tabernacles. First fruits is Pentecost. The first fruits of Ingathering at the year's end is the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day. Now, that's, that's the plan of God. That's the order of what, how things will happen. This is the secret that's being made known to us. This festival of the blowing of trumpets is only nine days before the Day of Atonement, indicating that these two festivals are closely associated. You've got from, from summer to fall going to trumpets, but you've only got nine days to, uh, to atonement. That association between trumpets and, and uh, Pentecost, I mean, uh, Atonement is the fact that our sins cannot be covered without first drinking the cup that Christ drank and being baptized with the baptism that he was baptized with, which are both typified by the trumpet judgments of Revelation 16 within our life. This judgment is even now taking place within the life of those who are the house of God and are acknowledged as such at the Feast of Trumpets. You've got all that time from Pentecost to trumpets bringing us to those who are in that first fruit Pentecost and bringing us to the trumpets. As the seven priests with the seven trumpets circling Jericho demonstrate the festival of trumpets acknowledges that the day of judgment begins at the house of God. And it had been taking place since that house was established at Pentecost. But judgment is accomplished in all men, each in his own order. In time, God's trumpet judgments will include all who are in Adam. But at this time, judgment is being achieved by the seven, beasts, the seven priests, who are also called seven angels of the seven churches, which angels, we are also told, blow the seven trumpets and pour out the seven vials, 
with the wrath of God, which are essential to consume the man of sin with the spirit of their mouth. That's what these holy days are showing us. And shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Look at what uh, we're told about these seven priests in Joshua 6.13. The seven priests bearing the seven trumpets. Same number of trumpets that we hear in the book of Revelation. Seven trumpets. Same people. The priests of Ramsorns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew, the seven, blew with the trumpets. And the armed men went before them. But the reward came after the ark of the Lord. And the priests going on blowing with the, the trumpets. And in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, Then shall the wicked be revealed. The Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. That's what these trumpeters do. Because as they are trumpeting here, Jericho is just about to fall. Jericho is that man of sin. Revelation 15.7, One of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, full of the wrath of God. That's one of the four beasts. Now remember who the beasts are. Revelation 5. You have redeemed us to yourself out of every nation, language, and people. That's what they said, along with the four and twenty elders. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters. So you have the four beasts, one of the beasts, giving the vials to the angels. And then you have one of the angels, which has the seven vials, showing us the judgment of the great whore. And there came one of the seven angels, chapter 21, verse 9, which had the seven vials, full of the, re- the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. So the angels, which have the seven vials, which are given to them by the beast, one of the four beasts, tell us who they are. They tell us who they are. They show us the judgment of the harlot, and they show us the bride the lamb's wife. In Revelation 19, right after being shown the judgment of the harlot, I fell at his feet to worship him, the angel of Revelation 17, 1, who showed him these things. And he said to me, See you do it not. I am your fellow servant, and of your brothers that have the testimony of Jesus. That's what it says. I didn't say it. This is our fellow servant. That's up to you and me. You're the, my brothers that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We've got to say these things. We've got to show each other these things. We've got to prophesy these things. We've got to. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. This is chapter 22, verse 8. This is after he's been shown the bride's wife by the same angel. Saw these things and heard them. And when I heard them, and had seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, who showed me these things. And he said to me again, See you do it not, I'm your fellow servant, and of your brothers the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. It's through the blowing of the seven trumpets by the seven priests that Jericho's walls, typifying the walls and the fortifications of the kingdom of the beast within us, are destroyed. As we are shown earlier, it all begins at the house of God. The time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what will the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Begin doesn't mean that this is the end of God's judgment. It's just the beginning. And it begins with his own house, his first fruits, his body, which is his church. This is how Paul describes this judgment, which begins at the house of God. Colossians 1.24 who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. This verse reveals a great truth which many who have been deceived by the false doctrine of substitutionary death of Christ will and do consider blasphemy. Nevertheless, Paul very clearly states here that his own sufferings are for Christ's body's sake, which is the church. He even states that his sufferings in his body is the afflictions of Christ in my body, 
which are behind lacking of the afflictions of Christ. Wow. Who does Paul think he is? Jesus? Well, that's what Jesus thinks. I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you persecute. That's what he told Paul. When his name was Saul. So now Saul is not persecuting. He's being persecuted. And he realizes the truth of what Christ told him back there on the road to Damascus. He is Jesus of Nazareth. And you and I are too. It is all the work of God and not of us. But it is being done through us for his body's sake, which is the church. As we will discuss in our next study, as the Lord wills. Now the next holy day is the Day of Atonement. And that's a day of fasting, afflicting your soul. There's a reason for that, and I hope we'll, we'll be here to hear that next week. It's only nine days after the Feast of Trumpets. And it's followed only five days later by the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day, which we will get to in our next study, Lord willing. So that's our study for today. And uh, we will uh, do what Sandy has to do here.